Evening, everyone. If you could get your Bibles or your Bible apps open to Exodus 19. This won't be on the screen, so I'm going to give you a moment to find it. That's Exodus 19, for those who have already forgotten. Okay, and I'm going to read from verse 1. Israel at Mount Sinai. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel." So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. 
And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Dramatic introduction over here. Uh, and a whack of reading, well done to the Nikers for taking on the marathon. When Tracy sent me a message a little bit earlier in the week saying like, hey, is there maybe a portion of the text tonight that you would like to have read that you're going to focus on? I was like, is it possible to do all of it? And, and to Tracy's credit, she said, okay. And then, and then here we are. So you have me uh, to either thank or complain about for an entire chapter of scripture read this evening. But, I, you know, I felt very strongly that we should uh, read all of it this evening because it's been such a massive, foundational, challenging passage to me in my life. Um, it really almost, like, it hit me for a six uh, in my varsity space, particularly. Um, I, yeah, I, I really grappled with this. I'd kind of been in and out of church through high school um, I went to youth for a bit. There was a girl there that I liked, so I thought that was probably a good reason. But, but as you might imagine, it's not a, a reason that keeps you in church, you know. And I, I kind of left and then had this crisis of faith at the beginning of my second year of varsity when I was like, flip, I'm supposedly believing a whole bunch of things that my parents believe. I've got no reason for those things, you know, and it really sent me into a bit of a spiral. This is one of the texts that, that challenged me and shaped me I'm super excited that I get to, to share it with you this evening. But the thing that really made me think uh, in this text was that of all the major religions of the world, Christianity is the only one that claims that we can be in God's presence now in this life and that that's an experiential thing. Okay, are you with me? Christianity is the only religion that claims that we can be in God's presence now in this life, not when you die only, and that that's an experiential thing. Okay, that really made me think in my second year. Okay, where am I at? Oh, these are all in the wrong order. Um, Okay, so that's not what the other religions of the world teach at all. Okay, I think what was so interesting to me, I'm just going to keep doing this, is that In those religions, God is creator, he's supreme, he's powerful, but there's this massive distance between God and man, okay? Look at that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of pages. There's a distance between God and man, there's a chasm, but God in all of those is not to be enjoyed, you know, like experienced. There's not that same sense of, man, I just enjoy being with God. And I think what struck me too in my second year as a very cynical varsity student, uh, 
ask Ian or Rich about what a cynical Ollie was like. But, but seriously, one of the things that I thought was like, that's a very exposing claim to make for any religion, okay? Because it's essentially saying that if I got a loan by myself, without any religious person, you know, like a priest or, a, or whatever, I could experience God for myself or not. And the thing that I kept thinking to myself was if I were making up a new religion, okay, if I wanted some power or influence or something, I were making up a new religion, I would never have said that. I would want to keep as much control over my followers as possible. And I would have said something like, uh, if you were to put your faith in my God, he will come and be with you, but you won't be able to experience that. But it's true. You know, you just need to have faith and then, that's, then he is meeting with you, but you won't be able to know it. You know, something like that. And it really fascinated me in this text, in many others, Exodus 33 and then through the Bible, that the Bible never makes that claim, but makes the opposite claim over and over again that God is relational. We can come into his presence. His spirit dwells within us. We can experience him in a very tangible way. Okay, that's a massive claim. And it's such a significant claim because that's an invitation then to you and to me tonight, right? If we really can experience God today in this life, then that invitation is open to us today, right? It's not just back then. The invitation is to actually come into God's presence, to experience His love, His joy, His peace. There's an invitation to experience a God who's not far off and distant, but is very, very close to that. Right? If you want that, that's the invitation. Do you want that? That's one of the things that I love about this text. It really pulls that into perspective. And, uh, and so if you're not a Christ follower and you're joining us tonight, I would really ask you to contemplate that through the course of this message as we look at the text. It, we're not talking about a God of metaphors. You know, we're not just saying Moses metaphorically went into the presence of God. We're saying he actually did. So man, if we're Christ followers today, we believe that the Holy Spirit actually fills us. We can experience that. It's not a metaphor. And that's a very big claim that I'd ask you to consider tonight. Okay. So where are we going tonight? We're going to walk through this chapter, basically, start to finish. And we're going to look at God's covenant and people, God's holiness, God's presence, and God's sacrifice. Those four things. So let's start by looking at God's covenant and people. So through the book of Exodus, God has made promises to Moses a few times. And we've been able to see some of those promises fulfilled so far. Okay, so for instance, God promised he's going to bring his people out of Egypt, and he did, right, in a very miraculous way. And that one's probably quite obvious. When I think of the story of Exodus, I think the people come out of Egypt. Okay, but there's another promise that God made to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 that's being fulfilled now in chapter 19 that I missed on my first reading of this text. I only saw it when I started doing my homework on this passage. And I really want to show it to you because I think it's quite profound. So in Exodus 3, God promises to Moses the people are coming out of Egypt. They're going to serve him at Sinai. They're going to go into the promised land. Here's what he writes. Now Moses was keeping the the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Okay, so... Now, Horeb is Mount Sinai. At the very least, Horeb is the region in which Sinai is located. But most people are happy to say Horeb is Sinai. 
So when Moses left Egypt originally, he came here to this mountain that we find ourselves in Exodus 19. And he herded his livestock in this region. And he has this encounter with God at the burning bush. And remember that when God meets with Moses initially in Sinai, he makes the promise that he's going to bring Israel into the promised land by saying, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's God's promise, right? He's got a land prepared for Israel, and that land's not just like any old land that they're going to settle. You know, the promised land is not just non-Egypt. You know, like once we get out, we'll take what we can get. The, the promised land's a very definite place. It's the place where these people are living, which is Canaan. And then God says, I'm going to prove to you okay, that I will fulfill that promise to bring Israel into the promised land. So he's almost making a deposit on the promise. You know, he's saying like, by this, I will assure you that my promise will ultimately be fulfilled. And this is what he writes in Exodus 3.12. I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, you see that? So the sign that God is going to be with Moses, and the sign that he's going to bring his people into the promised land is that they will return to the mountain upon which Moses is having this interaction with God in chapter 3. And they're going to serve God there. I don't think that's in the foreground of this text. It doesn't jump out to you at all. It didn't to me. But it's so helpful to know as we start chapter 19 that what we're seeing now isn't just an amazing encounter with God, one-off, this is something brand new. This is actually the proof that God is eventually going to fulfill his promise to bring his people into the promised land. You know, he's saying, I fulfilled this promise, I'm going to fulfill the next one. And so here we are, we've returned to Sinai. We're back to the mountain where God first called Moses, where the people are to serve and worship God. Isn't that cool? Okay, so now we're going to begin the second half of the book of Exodus, pretty much. In chapter 19, verse 2, there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, thus you shall say, to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So here's the opening of everything that's going to come in the rest of the book of Exodus. God says, I've redeemed you out of slavery, right? I brought you out of Egypt by my strength and my power. That's on eagles' wings. You know, that's that picture. I've brought you here to me. It's quite significant, I think. Before I bring you to the promised land, you know, this land flowing with milk and honey, I brought you here to be with me. So before he takes Israel to their destination, he's setting up their identity as a nation. So he says that Israel are going to be three things. The first is that Israel is going to be God's treasured possession among all the people of the world, right? So although the world is filled with nations and tribes and peoples, they're not the Lord's treasured possession. Only Israel is the Lord's treasured possession. He has dominion over and care for all the people of the world, but Israel alone are the Lord's people. You know, it's like he's chosen them out from amongst the people of the world, and he said, you're mine. Then Israel's going to be a kingdom of priests. The privilege afforded to priests is that they enjoy this intimate access to God. Okay? B 
beyond that of ordinary people. They drew near to God on behalf of the people throughout the Old Testament. Their role is to serve him. And ultimately, when Israel comes into the promised land, the priests don't get any portion of that land. It goes to all the other people, and the priests get nothing. Why? Because God is the priest's portion. You know, God is the, the priest's treasure. And so in some sense, Israel being a kingdom of priests is saying God is going to be Israel's portion and treasure, right? They're going to enjoy this access to the Lord beyond that of all the other peoples. And the third is that Israel's going to be a holy nation. To be a holy nation is to have a moral likeness to God. It's to be distinct. It is to be set apart. So Israel is going to be almost like removed, set apart from the other peoples of the earth. And Israel is supposed to act like God, which basically means to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. As God says in Leviticus 19.2, be holy for I am holy. But these three things that Israel is going to be are the results of a covenant laid out in verse 5. So we're going back a little bit. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be to me. So Israel's going to be God's treasured possession and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation if they keep the covenant between them and God. So what we're seeing here in Exodus 19 is that this is the start of God expounding on an already existent covenant with the people of Israel. Okay, so God isn't making something brand new here. He's expounding on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, do you remember Ryan talking to us about that in week one? If not, quick run through. God sets up this covenant with Abraham. I'm going to bless the nations of the world through you. Then he renews it with Isaac, Abraham's son, in Genesis 26.3. To you and to your descendants, I'll give these lands. I will fulfill the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. He renewed the covenant with Jacob, Isaac's son, at Bethel in Genesis 28, 13 to 15. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I'll give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. And so now God is renewing that same covenant with Moses and the people of Israel 400 years later. That's the line. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and he's bringing them out and he's reminding his people, we have a covenant between us. So whereas Abraham was one man, as was Isaac, as was Jacob, now the Lord is renewing his covenant with a whole nation of people. And while the covenant to Abraham was quite simple, in the second half of the book of Exodus, he expounds on what the covenant entails. In many ways, the remainder of these covenant stipulations and decrees that we're going to see are basically God expounding on verse 5 and 6. It's almost as if Israel is asking the question, well, how does a holy nation, God's priests, God's treasured possession, conduct themselves? You know, how are we supposed to live our lives? How do we eat, dress, worship, govern ourselves, interact with one another? 
And so as God renews this covenant, he lays out the stipulations of what the covenant entails. Does that make sense? So God lays all it out to Moses, and then he tells Moses to go and tell the people what the Lord has said, and the people readily accept the terms of the covenant. <laughs> they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They've got no complaints. They're taking it on. This is amazing. We can be the Lord's people. We'll obey him. So let's look at God's holiness now in verse 9. God says to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So what's about to take place now over the next few verses, the next few chapters, is supposed to be a public endorsement to all the nation of Israel that Moses is the one through whom God is revealing his word. And so now the Lord gives Moses and the people of Israel a warning at this point and the steps that they need to prepare for his coming. They're to consecrate themselves, right? That means you make yourself ritually, ceremonially pure and clean. They're going to be physically clean. They, they honestly have to wash their garments and prepare for three days. Why? Because on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. And the thing that is so important here is that the Lord himself will come down on Mount Sinai. The Lord will be there. They must consecrate themselves because God is absolutely perfect. He's absolutely holy, set apart, such that nothing unclean or sinful can come into his presence. And so the people cannot even touch the mountain upon which God is going to descend. Now, to make it absolutely clear, there is nothing holy about Mount Sinai in and of itself. The mountain will be made holy because God's holy presence will rest there. And so no one is to come near the mountain. No one's to go up the mountain. No one's to touch the edge of the mountain. No animal is to come close to this mountain. This mountain is going to briefly be the place that houses the manifested glory of God. And because of that, no one can go near it. If you touch the mountain, you'll be put to death. Right? And because you're unclean, your executioner won't even touch you. Do you see that? There's distance. You stone them. Shoot them with arrows. That sounds like a very brutal point, but it's really demonstrating an essential point, which is Israel is an unclean, unholy, sinful people who cannot go into the presence of God. They are not God's chosen people because they are great. They are just as sinful and broken as everyone else. They cannot go into God's presence, not just legally, as in we're not allowing you to go into God's presence, but physically and spiritually, if these people were to go up the mountain, they would die, right? God's holiness will not abide with sin. God's holiness expels sin. In our prayer meeting, Amy reminded us that the high priest would go into the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, once a year, and he'd have a rope tied around his waist because if he were unclean, he would die, and they could pull him out by the rope. That's what we're dealing with. This is real not metaphorical. If you're sinful, you cannot come into God's presence. And so let's look at God's presence from verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. 
The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The last time Moses was at Sinai, it was just him. God spoke to him through a burning bush. And this time he's at Mount Sinai. It's the whole nation of Israel, and the whole mountain is burning and shaking. So this is what Sinai looks like. That's Mount Sinai. Can you imagine what the scene would have looked like at the foot of that mountain? And I, I just ask you to imagine being an Israelite at this point. Don't imagine that you're Moses. Okay, you don't get to be the main character. <laughs> imagine that you're just an Israelite. All right? There are a couple of hundred of us in here this evening. Imagine thousands and thousands of fellow Israelites. You've been tramping through the desert for three months. You're tired and thirsty. You know you're going to a new land. You don't know where it is. And we've stopped at the base of this mountain. You set up your little tent because you've been told that in three days, this holy God who delivered you out of Egypt is going to descend on that mountain. And so for three days, you've been fastidiously cleaning yourself because you know that God is holy and you're not, and you're preparing for this moment when God is going to descend on Mount Sinai. Imagine you're standing at the base of that mountain and everything is normal. It's just a normal day. It looks like this. You and all the nation of Israel around you, thousands and thousands of you. And then you watch as a cloud begins to descend on the mountain. And it gets thicker and blacker. Thunder begins to boom, lightning flashes, and suddenly a trumpet sounds somewhere out in the storm and begins to call and call. And you see fire and thick smoke billowing up from the mountain. The earth begins to shake underneath your feet. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I think I would have been terrified. I think that some of it I might have been able to taste in some way, shape, or form before. You know, maybe I would have been like, man, this is just a crazy st- storm. But as I sat with this picture, I think that once I heard that trumpet sounding from out in the midst of the storm, I think I would have just gone, something in- insane is happening here. Something intense. I was preparing for something. It wasn't this. This is so much bigger than I thought. And so it's you amongst this nation of Israel, and you can see Moses out in front of you, you know, tiny and powerless. And his voice can't be heard over the sound of that trumpet, but you know he's speaking. And then out of that storm, the burning mountain, the sound of the trumpet, God answers him in crashing thunder. Man, I think the overwhelming emotion felt through the camp of Israel must have been awe. Awe and fear, probably, hand in hand. And then we see something striking. Something that we've not seen in the scriptures up until now. This is something almost unbelievable. It's so incredible. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. 
The Lord descends on Mount Sinai. His presence is there on Mount Sinai, not a representation. His actual presence. And he calls Moses up to where he is. He calls Moses to come into his presence. That might not seem that significant to us right now. Might not be something that we consider worth mentioning or pausing at. But if we rush over it, I really think we lose a lot of what Exodus 19 is displaying. And I want to ask Christ followers specifically, what does that make you feel? What does this passage make you feel? What's the emotion that's ushered up as we consider this? Is what is happening here deeply significant to you? Because if I'm honest, the first time I came to this passage, it didn't really seem that amazing to me. I just, you know, I, I was asking myself questions that you might be asking yourself. Like, isn't this basically what happens when we pray? You know, like, isn't this what happens when we worship? We come into God's presence. His Holy Spirit lives within me now. And it's cool that Moses got to experience that. But what's the big deal on this one? And I think that that's probably what many, many Christ followers across the world would echo. You know, what, what is the meaning behind this? I would probably have echoed that too. But I would say that when I see myself asking that question at this text, that's a massive red flag for me. And it's only a massive red flag for me because when my response to a text is the exact opposite of what the text is trying to communicate, I've got to stop and listen. I've got to start asking myself some questions. Because the thing that is so striking about this text is that Moses is doing what no one has done before. Moses is going into God's presence. No one has done that ever. No one. You see, we act like coming into God's presence is a normal thing. You know, it's just something that anyone can do. It's daily. It's normal. It's part of the way that life is. You know, we act like nothing special is happening. And so I wanted to ask you a question that I've asked myself at this text a number of times, which is, when was the last time you felt a sense of awe that you were coming into God's presence? When was the last time that you were truly in awe of what was happening in that moment? Does the fact that we can come into the presence of the living God, the almighty God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, do something to you? Does it do something to you? Or does it feel plain? I'm not saying that every time we pray, we need to feel the significant, deep emotion, or that we need to feel like our lives have changed every time we pray. You know, I'm not talking about raw emotion. That is a good thing to consider. What I'm actually asking us to consider is, when was the last time you went to pray or worship, and you thought to yourself, man, this is big. This is big. I'm coming into God's presence. There's no small thing. This is me. I'm sinful. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to come into his presence. But I'm meeting with the supreme king of the universe, God above. I'm coming into his presence. This is huge. I find myself growing dull to this all the time. And you remind myself of this again and again. I was saved at a pretty young age. I've been in and out of church like I shared with you. And now, 
having been a common ground for years, and I find myself coming back to this passage again and again because of this. And maybe you would share that with me, that when God is a part of your life for so long, if I'm not careful, I can get complacent about how glorious that is. You know, when the Holy Spirit dwells within you, when God's own Spirit actually dwells within you, we can sometimes lose perspective of what's so significant about that. We can begin to feel like, I've got the Spirit dwelling within me. I know many people who have the Spirit dwelling within them. And in fact, we believe all Christ followers have the Spirit dwelling within them. It's pretty normal. But it's not normal. (laughs) To come into the presence of the living God is something that people did not do. And I think that if we had to ask this nation of Israel and explain to them the reality that you and I experience, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, I think they would have, that would have blown their minds. I don't think they could have even comprehended that God himself might dwell with man. And they, we would probably sing with the psalmist, who is man that you are mindful of him, you know? There is a problem here, though, and it's something that we've touched on, but it's reiterated in verse 21, which is, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, and look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. But the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Okay, so here's the problem. If God is as holy as we've said, you know, so holy that to even come near him is to die because sin cannot be in his presence, then why can Moses come into his presence? Why is God passed over or ignored or disregarded Moses' sin? If the people had to consecrate themselves and to ensure that they didn't even touch the bottom of the mountain, let alone go up it, because God's perfectly holy, then how is it that Moses gets a free pass? Is Moses not sinful? Should he not be dead? (laughs) He should be. He should be dead. He was a sinful man as we've clearly seen over the past few weeks. He was just as flawed and broken as you and I. So listen carefully now, please. The reason that Moses could ascend that burning mountain, come into the presence of God, is the same reason that the Holy Spirit can dwell within every Christ follower. So here's why. In Romans 3, Paul expounds on this very issue. How is it that God passed over Moses and other Old Testament people's sin, didn't punish them then? How's that reasonable? Okay, this is probably the headiest part of what we're going to look at today. So bear with me, but it's all going to come together. So let's read carefully. Romans chapter three. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received through faith. So from verse 23, 
there is no special or exempt person. All have sinned. Everyone has sinned. Moses too. And fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone deserves to die when they touch that mountain. And you and I, because of our sin, because we've chosen to live life by our own set of rules, when faced with the Almighty God, we also deserve to die. But if we're justified, that is to be made right before God, that we're no longer counted as sinners, right? Then that justification is only through faith in Jesus Christ. If we want to be made righteous before God, not full of sin, but free from sin, then that's only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. You following me? God has given Christ as a propitiation, right? That means a wrath-removing sacrifice, a sacrifice that once made takes away punishment. God's given Christ to die in our place. You know, it's as if all of us were standing before that mountain, and God's told us that if we touch it, we die. We see His glory manifested on the mountaintop. And then it's as if Jesus descends from that mountaintop, perfect and sinless. He is God Himself. And He comes to us. It's as if He's standing before you and He takes your sin off your shoulders and puts it on Himself. And then it's as if He turns around, walks back to that mountain, touches it, and dies because He's bearing your sin and my sin. And now, because we no longer bear that, we can go up that mountain into God's presence without fear of death, knowing that our sin is paid for, knowing that we don't have to die because Jesus has died in our place. That's what Paul means when he says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus died in our place, bearing our sins so that we could be with God. Isn't that incredible? Okay, so how does this relate to Moses? Let's continue to verse 25. This everything we've spoken about, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he's passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus' death was to show all the world that God is righteous, okay? that God punishes every single sin, that not one single wrong has been committed that he will not punish, Okay, we can see in the cross that God is just and fair because he punishes evil. Jesus shows the world that he is righteous today because in his divine forbearance, that is patience and tolerance, it's almost as if he's passed over or ignored or swept under the carpet sins that happened before Jesus, like Moses' sins. Right? Are you following me? We and the Israelites at the time might look at Moses and think, How is it that a sinful man can come into the presence of God? To which Paul has explained, he came into God's presence because his sin was paid for on the cross by Jesus. Right, do you see that? God passed over his sin, but he didn't ignore it. That was paid for on the cross by Jesus. Sin is never ignored. There are two options when it comes to sin. One, it's paid by me. Or it's paid by Jesus on the cross. But God never ignores sin. And that's to show that God is just, that he punishes sin, that he is a good judge, 
who defends those who've been wronged and upholds right over wrong. It shows that he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's because of God that we are made right. Do you see that? It's because of God that we can come into God's presence. God has made a way to deal with the very thing keeping me from his presence. Isn't that glorious? In the cross, we see that God is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. I think that Jesus sums up this reality so beautifully in just one sentence, in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's it exactly, isn't it? That's exactly what we've seen in this text. No one. Us, sinful people, the Israelites, Moses, no one comes to the Father up that mountain, into God's presence, except through Jesus and his sacrifice, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's exactly what we've seen. We've seen that God is holy and righteous, that we are a sinful people separated from God by our sin. We deserve to be separated from him forever. And the only way to come to God is to be, and to be with him is to have faith in Jesus. He takes our sin on himself to die in our place. And now we can come into his presence. His Holy Spirit dwells not on a mountain, not in a temple, not in a church, but within each one of us. Isn't that glorious? Can I invite the band up? I'd like to ask, let's stand. If you're not a Christ follower and you've joined us this evening, I would just ask you to consider some of what I was first struck by in this text. God is holy and righteous. He's good and loving. He's perfect in all his ways. But remember that the thing that struck me about the claim of God again and again in the Bible is that he is real and you can actually experience his realness. And that's the invitation before you. Do you want to go up that mountain? Do you want to be with him and experience the presence of the living God? Because you can. You need only to put your faith in Jesus. You need him to take your sin on his shoulders so that you can go into God's presence. You can't go there without him. You need him to get to God. And if you want that, believe in him. Pray to him now. Ask him to forgive your sins, to come and fill you with the Holy Spirit. And that's a prayer that I've prayed and he answers it can experience the fullness of his spirit daily. If that's you, man, come and pray with us afterwards. Come pray with Garth and Rich and Tim, any of us. We would love to pray with you. If you're a Christ follower, we're going to respond in worship. But can I ask that we just together, collectively, prepare our hearts for that? Remind ourselves that this is not something that's normal and ordinary. And maybe we would do well to just meditate on this text that we've been looking at this evening. So can I ask us just to close our eyes? Just everyone, let's just close our eyes together. Imagine that you're standing at the foot of that mountain, surrounded by thousands of people. See that storm raging above your head. 
You can smell the smoke, feel the heat. Imagine hearing that trumpet sound piercing through the thunder. And you hear God call Moses up to where he is. And you watch Moses climb slowly up that mountain and disappear into the storm. And you know that he's in God's presence. Imagine that. And imagine that out of that storm, over the sound of the trumpet, you hear God call your name. He calls your name and says, come up. You step out from amongst the people. You walk towards the base of that mountain and up into the clouds and the smoke to where God is. many ways that's where we are tonight his spirit is with us we are in his presence now the presence of God almighty the king of kings and lord of lords who is above all things and who are we that he should love us who are we that he should care for us we've done nothing to deserve that and so God as we turn our eyes to you this evening. We want to worship you for who you are, God. We want to repent of the times when we've played down what it means to be in your presence. God, we want to repent of the times when that's been normal to us, plain to us, insignificant to us, when coming into your presence has been a chore. Because God, the fact that we can be here this evening in your presence is something that people would never have believed would have been possible. But through your sacrifice, through the price that you paid, we can come into your presence. So God, I ask that you just help us to see you as you are. Help us to see you not as a small God, but as the creator of the universe who spoke all things into being, who upholds all things by the word of his power, and he will wrap up all of history. You are our God and we love you. We submit to you this evening. We worship you because you are worthy, worthy, worthy of our praise. We love you, Lord Jesus. Let's respond to him in worship.